0: everybody, welcome to the Gods Will Not Save You, The Wire Revisited. I'm
1: Willie Romano Pugh. Hey, everyone, uh, this is Yaakov great to be back here with you what's up willie i see (laughs) thanks for getting us started uh yeah you know this is the the podcast where we do a deep read into the
0: hit hbo show the wire uh if you like us if you like what you hear please give us five stars and a nice review on the itunes or any of the podcast sites we're now available on stitcher so tell your friends who uh don't you know, have Spotify on their phones because they don't support it for moral or ethical reasons or whatever. Um, also, if you <laughs> want to, if you want to donate to our podcast, that support link is at anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support. And with that, let's get into s- discussing season three, episode two. All due respect.
1: Yeah. This is a, it's a great episode. We got a, uh... Richard Price, uh, doing the teleplay. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's, uh, sneakily fun, you know, funny Richard Price, definitely a guy who known for his, uh, humor and his, his, uh, great ability as far as dialogues concerned. I know we talked about his work and contribution a little bit last episode. So, you know, we got plenty of time here to, to get into all that, but Let's get started with the little uh, Omar. He's back in town, or he's he's been in town, but just hasn't been appearing uh, in front of us. So good yeah. to get to see him back, even if at first we may not we may not even realize it.
0: Oh, he is laying low for a little while, uh, and it's in Richard Price's writing debut on the show that uh, he's tasked with the responsibility <laughs> of reintroducing Omar <laughs> in a kind of comical new way um and it just uh fits in line with uh kind of what you were saying way back when we first started this project that David Simon has like a fried chicken theory or he doesn't want to give people too much of like what exactly what they want so It's only natural and fitting that Omar has been gone a little bit uh, so far in this season. We haven't, uh, you know, gotten our fill of him. And he only comes back for one scene in this episode, kind of always leaving us wanting more because he's such a popular uh, kind of crazy character.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, when you hear stories of, you know, maybe people like. Dennis Lehane, Richard Price, you know, these writers who are really well accomplished in their own right, maybe feeling like they aren't uh, bringing everything to the table, not just, you know, not just the chicken. Uh, but, you know, there's maybe a reason why those sort of feelings might exist or that anxiety might be, uh, might be <laughs> surrounding them uh, because David Simon might be just messing with them like, you know what, Richard, you're going to be the guy. To uh, reintegrate Omar. Yeah. He's like, oh, shoot. I mean, I could only imagine, you know, writing, writing for TV, script writing or writing a teleplay is a whole different beast, I'm assuming, as opposed to spending three years writing a novel, right?
0: Yeah. And, but I think it's also like there's kind of a, there was kind of a agreement between them that they were going to kind of lean on each other for their areas of expertise um, I kind of remember some mm-hmm. of anecdotes from the All the Pieces Matter book where they were courting, uh, Simon and Policanos were kind of like courting Richard Price, Williams, well not so much Williams Orsi but also Dennis Lehane and they're kind of like well I don't really know the area like is that going to be a problem and they just yeah. say, like, <laughs> you know, you know the cultures, you know the like kind of lingos. All you have to do when you're writing in the screenplay is just type in street <laughs> street name
1: like in parentheses, and we'll fill in the locations for you. So exactly, I mean, talking about street names, um, uh, there's some great dialogue that sets off this opening scene, and it's uh, you know very seamless. The conversation between the two. Barksdale soldiers, we can presume, on the front porch of the uh, stash house. And one of them has a pretty interesting tale about uh, being approached by some sort of out-of-towner or a, a white guy asking for a, what he says is the Edward Allen Poe <laughs> or the Poe home. Then <laughs> um, he was on he was on Carrollton, this guy, when he was approached. Pretty funny stuff. Uh, and, you know, the Poe, the Poe house, of course, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I think born in Boston but spent a lot of time in Baltimore and yeah it's like it's basically I mean we got the Poe Homes which are adjacent to where Lexington Terrace you know of course Franklin Terrace modeled after that it's right in that neighborhood so it's literally like I think there's you know you got the projects and uh, I think the Poe like the Edgar Allen Poe Home, is almost attached it's like it's not really a row house, but it's basically still attached to one of the units, I, I imagine. So maybe I'd skip it for now. Um, but yeah, he died in Baltimore at Growl and Pope. But it was just, you know, some pretty funny dialogue there is to get also, things started.
0: Is this also kind of like a teaser for like some bigger jokes coming up with uh, people uh, mispronouncing Amsterdam, Hamsterdam, leading to the whole thing? Yeah,
1: maybe. It's kind of trying
0: to set us up for. A lot of common misunderstandings. Yeah,
1: yeah, of course. I mean, we'll get to the legend of Amsterdam, but another, another. I I mean, there's a fine line between you know painting the picture of like complete ignorance, you know, as far as the people populating their world, You know, like Richard Price and George Pelicanos, but I mean, yeah, they've they've done the work. They spent the time. Um, I mean, let's just—if—if uh, if David Simon's uh, pretty amazed and astounded by an uh, author's work as far as depicting a, a world, you know, as Richard Price did in Clockers, you know, that—that that speaks of something. Someone who's been on the ground in Baltimore, for a, a wealth of experience. But what about Omar's uh, disguise and the whole scenario? Is this plausible? How does does this introduction did age as well as Omar's transformation into Old Man Earl? you know from the va <laughs> <laughs> um, he's like he's all shaking and got those ridiculous old people glasses on and he has the I wig mean, on too
0: yeah. he has the wig yeah he's on.
1: got a wig i mean <laughs> it's a little it's pretty
0: <laughs> i mean no it's it's actually great and i don't know what you're talking about with any inkling of criticism you have yeah <laughs>
1: Um, No, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't criticize this show. It's all love. This is the podcast of, you know, complete wire fandom.
0: um, I did find it interesting though, how he like broke his rule on no swearing uh, in the instance Mm. when the heist Mm. goes off because uh, uh, one of his guard, one of the Barksdale soldiers says, Oh shit and omar repeats that phrase oh shit as he pulls the gun out of his waist belt so i don't know a little bit of a maybe richard price didn't do enough research on omar's character to fully recognize that he's anti-swearing
1: Uh, What about McNulty? He's he's come across some pretty uh, damning information or, you know, what he thinks could be a break in the case, maybe finding out D'Angelo is dead and by an apparent suicide. So he's visiting with uh, his old pal the medical examiner, Frazier. Yeah. So what do you think?
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, I like how, how he comes in, in the middle of like a scared straight scenario where like a cop is trying to like yeah. your kids on, you know staying out of a life of crime by holding up like real organs from like a one of these cadavers yeah this is some potentially explosive information uh as McNulty sees it for you know the major crimes unit and could change you know could have major implications and change the trajectory of where they're going and maybe shake things up and bringing them closer to stringer because um He just does like a minimal amount of digging, it seems, and easily dispels the notion that D'Angelo's death could even have the remote possibility of being a suicide. Yeah.
1: But real quick before we talk more about McNulty. So Frazier's played by Eric Dellums, who I found out just today. I'm sure you probably knew this already, but... That's Ron Dellums, former Oakland mayor, and you know R- U.S. Congress member's son. So I, I was going to bring. Well, we're talking about McNulty with a theory and possibly a conspiracy theory. I know it's been a while since maybe I had one of these or we discussed. So we all we, we and we've discussed this prior. I, I'm sure how David Simon in the late two thousands was attempting to bring a a show to Oakland about a pimp who maybe was trying to change his ways, or we didn't really ever get to find out because the show never got off the ground. And apparently Ron Dellums wasn't down with, you know, maybe the way we'll depict Oakland, but, do you think uh, Eric Delms, who had previously worked on, you know, Homicide and played a, uh, a drug lord, maybe read for Avon and didn't get the part and maybe placed a call to dad about uh, about this pending show <laughs> from David Simon? And it, and it wasn't Ron Delms all along. Oakland there from, I think, 2007 to 12, maybe he passed away rest in peace what do you think any thoughts on that or is that completely oh, you're uh, trying to su- unhinged
0: you're trying to suggest that eric dellums was a mole and he was like there was internal uh sabotage to uh spike david simon's project uh, that took would take place in oakland
1: yeah maybe he wanted maybe you know he had a beef with simon on set or uh, he wanted yeah he wanted uh, maybe not Avon. Maybe you want it to be Norm. Maybe you want it to be, maybe you want it to be carchetti You never know. You
0: know? really.
1: <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, my dad's a mayor or he's going to be mayor someday. He's a politician. I want to be a politician on your show. No, sorry. Nah. i eric don't i don't know i don't really know too much. he seems uh he's he was on fox news a lot apparently back in the day criticizing obama and how oh, he didn't wow. do anything for black people but it seemed like he was criticizing from the left but kept going on fox news over and over which i mean happens but not yeah. i don't know
0: there's all kinds of uh <laughs> crazy rationalizations people have for going i like i have conflicting feelings about uh that specific moral conundrum or whatever um but it's it's also i
1: mean you know
0: (laughs) david uh he also david simon also talked about how they had a rule um maybe like not necessarily like they were like enforcing it on purpose but it just kind of turned out the way that like if somebody were to play someone on the side of law enforcement in the corner then they would go to being like a drug dealer or a drug Lord or a drug addict in the wire and vice versa. Uh, and he talked about how Robert wisdom originally auditioned to play blue in the corner. And then he ended up being ah, yeah. open in the wire. So maybe it was just kind of following that, uh, the line of thinking that Eric Dellums auditioned for Avon and they could tell that he was like really talented as an actor, but they're like, Hmm we need you for a different kind of like cold and calculating, like someone who also isn't going to like flinch at the sight of uh, some dead bodies. Ah, yes. I think we need yeah. use you in the medical examiner role.
1: Maybe. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, it's, it's all possible, but anyways, I mean, McNulty is not, you know, he casts a wide net, obviously every time he's involved in something like this, he gets bunks, uh, take on things bunk said that men of color were you know black men don't kill themselves so it's not like oh all this evidence that you presented to me jimmy leads me to believe that he's just like you know that's just the thing you know we are <laughs> we're not inclined to do that
0: some great little evidence of their unique camaraderie in that bar scene
1: bunk doing the creeper uh i don't know yeah. I don't know how that's uh, aged, a, but...
0: Apparently his third routine for doing so, He's they say go with number three. They have like the cop lingo worked out for like, you know, what they have to do in their day to day. But then like when they're in the bar, they have their own little codes worked out too.
1: Jimmy doing his thing with the ladies. I don't know where that went. Not my business, but... He also goes to visit Donette, right? Um, and you had some interesting thoughts about that. I mean, aside from Jimmy acting like he lives there, knows them, and holding holding her son.
0: Yeah, um, he's he's like picking up her baby like it's no big deal, and talking about how he looks like <laughs> his father and uh yes i'm kind of i'm kind of with donette on this one where she's just like means, yeah like put him down like the last time you were here like the last time you guys were poking around somebody ended up dying so uh,
1: a bit disturbing but like uh display behavior there but it's jimmy uh he does weird stuff so yeah i'm trying
0: well, to i'm trying to uh make contact with marlo to reach out to him to give him a uh, A special on on our new product, but he's very evasive.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, I gotta. I mean, why aren't you all looking for him right now?
0: (laughs) Did you like it? (laughs) Did you think it was neat when there was that? There was that little like montage of like a different soldier. Like they have country making his pitch to someone and Shamrock (laughs) his pitch to another. Where he's yeah. like, "Oh, this shit is so John Blaze," and I was like, "That's you know, that's a cute little thing because it's like John Blaze. It's kind of like on fire, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe character, the Ghost Rider, and John Blaze or Johnny Blaze is also the alias of. It's like a nickname for Method Man who plays Cheese in the Wire.
1: All right, thanks. Yeah. I'll uh, bring it up if if I run into Marlo. Because, you know, Jamie Hector and I, we cross paths sometimes.
0: Oh, uh, you saw him once at the 101, <laughs> the now defunct 101 coffee shop in Hollywood.
1: Yeah, I think I may have told this story. I don't know how well I did, but I don't know if I need to spend all that time again. But he was, let's just say he was doing some very Marlowe-esque, uh, he had some Marlowe energy and it was freaking me out. <laughs> uh, he, seems, <laughs> he seems like such a
0: nice guy in interviews, though. <laughs>
1: No, no, he is. But he, I mean, who walks into that place? And, you know, they got the lunch counter. And I'm, I just get, I get this feeling. And I'm like, I know this person's from somewhere. And I'm sitting at the table, but I don't want to go. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to just show my, show my hand in its entirety. So I kind of glimpse, I i think I'm being slick. I, I use the, uh, the mirror that they have above the lunch, like the diner counter to, yeah. to look, you know, use the reflection. And then he's kind of, he's not looking at me, but he, I'm like, holy shit, that's, it's Jamie Hector, and then he gets up from there and just goes and sits at a empty table by himself, but uh yeah, he's just staring he just sits though so, so he can angle you know and see all the entrances and exits and then he just gets up and leaves after five minutes. I was like, what the hell and then I saw him another time driving picking up ramen and there's some guy I'm about to like uh, he kind of went in front of me or pulled off to the side in a narrow road. We we're looking for parking and I guess he's trying to make a u-turn. And then I like I should honk at this guy or whatever. No, oh, whatever. And then it's just like nice car, does a U turn and drives by I mean it's him again, I swear. I'm like, oh man, I'm glad I didn't honk at him. Like I, I, I'm like looking around, like, okay, there are no vacants in this neighborhood. That's that's good.
0: <laughs> uh, that's too much. Jamie Hector.
1: Yeah, that's too much, man. Jamie. Great guy. You know?
0: Yeah, Jamie Hector, incredible actor, incredible palette. He eats at great restaurants in LA.
1: Anyways, uh, so the streets, yeah. Uh, you want? Can we start off? I mean, we talked a little about Marlo. We'll, we'll be reintegrating him here, but he, you know, he's kind of a topic a little down the line. At first, basically, String and Avon, they having a little meet, Stringer's visiting, you know, the soon-to-be-released Avon. Uh, What do you think? Do you think he's uh, really ecstatic at that prospect of uh, Avon returning? Yeah, there was was a little... No anxiety there, right? (laughs) (laughs) There was a little bit of
0: a glimpse that Stringer gave uh, Avon through the glass after Avon mentions that Levy is going to kind of fix his hearing for him and he's going to get out of jail early. Um, I feel like Stringer's maybe a bit apprehensive that you know Avon might not be brushing up on Robert's rules of order and Adam Smith Mm. in jail, and he's gonna come in and kind of uh wreak havoc on this uh parliamentary little operation he has going on in the funeral home.
1: Yeah, yeah, he uh Stringer kind of brushes off the cutty comment that abon makes when uh you know in uh, responding to string mentioning their light on muscle uh, which he doesn't even seem i mean it's like i don't know obviously we could split hairs here but you know i i I would take that statement on you know by made by string as you know he really doesn't feel the need to have uh you know all, all the muscle in the world i mean if you look there's you know he has bodies around him it's just more so you know, he's trying to be diplomatic, but Avon wants those prime corners. He wants uh, the good real estate, which is, you know, essentially what he deems to be close enough to downtown to get the uh, the best uh, trade. So,
0: I mean, it's just interesting. I got more. It's interesting that Avon is technically in, in charge of this whole operation, but he's kind of advocating for some of the positions that Stringer was ridiculing in the last episode at the meeting in the funeral parlor he's you know chiding mm-hmm. Bodie for saying kind of similar things
1: um, but yeah I mean we kind of Made a little, made a little funny about Bodie attempting to track down Marlowe. You know what? Any thoughts on on their interaction?
0: Have you ever seen somebody look so intimidating, just like waving a golf club around in no particular, <laughs> with no particular.
1: Uh, to- Adam Sandler is pretty good. No, but I know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen what blunt instruments can do in this show. Um, You know, bats and stuff like that are used on occasion. So I don't know. I mean, uh, do you think there's any correlation between the whole like golfing is there, like an analogy there or something? Because we've seen like the top brass, you know, Burrell, like, he kind of golfs. I don't know. That just kind of popped in my head. I don't know. But why? I mean, Marlo doesn't golf, does he? So if he wants to kill someone, he has a gun. So why, why a golf club? Because that's like the first
0: it, it, yeah, it's, first, so, uh, it's it's so bizarre what he's doing stage. with it. He, he's like using it as a mace <laughs> or something.
1: Yeah, it's like a like some sort of sword, but it's, it's like dude, this is a golf club. I don't understand. I mean, but uh, yeah, they're both uh, for. I mean, for the person that we see Marlow, for the character that he is, as far as his ruthlessness. The way that this whole thing starts, I mean, there's quite a bit of diplomacy with Bodie. You know, he's refraining from any sort of violence. Even Marlowe's underlings, like his lieutenant fruit, I assume that's a lieutenant or one of his corner captains, tells the youngsters don't uh, don't shoot at him, don't do anything. And, you know, there's a lot of restraint shown. Maybe we see, you know, even if Marlowe's this new school gangster, um and he plays by his own rules has his own playbook there is someone in his corner who embodies kind of that old school old school character because he, he pays a visit to his guy at the rim shop vincent who's really? kind of like uh his uh you know as butchie as to omar this is kind of his uh older sage uh Really, I guess this is why we're doing this project, because I stumbled across some stuff about uh, yes. Vincent, and the actor who, who plays him. Uh, and this is all kind of coincidental because the actor in this case is named Norris Davis, uh, because I know I had mentioned kind of the, a little background about Elijah Davis uh, and the, the real Baltimore figure who was murdered in Baltimore in the late 70s a guy who you know shares a name with the person who Cuddy killed and you know which resulted in his sentence so and I don't know how clear I was but basically I kind of just uh I saw like this story oh the same name Elijah Davis oh there's a Norris Davis then there was something about police corruption involved you know in the aftermath of the investigation I just saw Norris and I went to like oh Norris police corruption and I just I went wild because you know it's my guy Ed norris right but norris davis was definitely he's not affiliated like he he's not a cop that there was basically he he was on some charges brought up on some charges at that time of for re- revolving around drugs um, but the cop who was also involved in this dispute that um norris davis was having with The state's attorney at the time was also, you know, involved with Elijah Davis somehow. This is kind of, it's like a bizarre story and it has nothing really to do with what I'm about to talk about with Norris. I'm just saying that, you know, he, Norris Davis was involved more in the criminal underworld of Baltimore. Not like a huge, you know, hardcore drug lord, but he seemed more maybe like, I don't know if I have a good example of a character from another show, but he was like the one throwing the send off parties before the big timers went to jail. So I was like... Um, and he was like a small-time felon and crook and stuff. And basically, he he yeah, he had like charges for stealing sixteen hundred dollars from Maryland Public Television. And basically, got a job at one point in the late nineties as a school counselor at a high like a troubled high school in Baltimore. And they apparently knew about his criminal background. But then, uh, when there's like a regime change in the school district, the new you know top brass uh found out that he didn't actually pay the restitution for that that money that he embezzled or stole from the public television um uh, and was like yeah you gotta go so he lost his job uh doing that and yeah he's also charged once for impersonating a lawyer kind of another weird story <laughs> so i guess he argued a custody case involving his sister but then they're like i i don't know if he's like i'm her lawyer i am a lawyer i'm also her brother but it's really weird. But that like, that story kind of it's even funnier when you take into account that. Well, I don't know. I don't know how many people got hurt because of his actions. So, but you know, it's just it's bizarre because in 2018 he wanted to put on a play called The Wire, a stage play, and it. This is basically, funny. yeah. So, so basically, uh, he it was going to be about Avon Barksdale and Chris Parlo in like a wire sequel where Avon's out of jail and Chris Parlo's the leader of the BGF Black Gorilla family and they're going to like you know have it out and whatnot and but he wanted to use their names you know Avon Bark still Chris Parlo and then uh David Simon got wind of it it was going to be put on a, a jazz and supper club like in Bethesda Maryland and said you know, you can't use their real names. You can't use those names because it's, you know, that's, those are the rights to, you know, HBO has those rights. And he's like, but I know those real people, you know, I know those people. And, it, and David Simon's adamant that, you know, that's, there is no Avon Barksdale, but, you know, Norris Davis claims, you know, that's, that's Nathan Barksdale, Nathan Barksdale claimed that his middle name was Avon, but yeah, you know, it was just this whole thing. The main point here though, is did David Simon know that. Uh, Norris Davis was basically a lawyer, you know, because uh, yeah. you know maybe if, maybe if he knew that information, he would have been he would not have been so confident. But I mean, apparently Norris Davis was a because he said that I'm gonna I'm if if HBO um. You know, wants to go like I'm not changing the name of the play. I'm not changing their names. But then he's like, "All right, maybe I'll change it. the names uh, of the production to Lexington Terrace because that's where I grew up." Yada yada. But pretty crazy. But yeah. Old Vincent, man. He's uh, kind of just Norris, man. What's up with you know, it's, yeah? Yeah, Unauthor- the Norris, man.
0: Unauthorized spinoff play <laughs> from one of the rogue
1: <laughs> actors. Yeah, but, yeah, like. <laughs> Oh, man, it's but, too great. But he's pretty but, great, pretty great actor. Uh, I love his. Yeah, he, I mean, if he could be a lawyer, he could be Vincent, right? I mean, yeah. No problem. He's like, he's like, what? Apparently, he also at one point was a recruiter for some technical school in the like an area near Lex- like where Lexington Terrace was, uh, you know, originally situated and he would just go to the social services office, like the welfare department, and in the lobby, just try to recruit people for the technical school. Like, you don't need welfare. Just, just come join this school. I saw. I found an article about that too. I'm assuming it's the same Norris Davis. But everyone who met him was like, this guy could be anything he wants, but he just can't get out of his own way. He's just like, oh, he's like trying to get into some schemes, like plotting. <laughs> Dude, imagine, like, no wonder Marlo's so crazy, man. Vincent knows on one all the time. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, he does, like, when he's, like, spinning those rims in his shop, it does look like he's, like, seeing something that we're not seeing. Like, he's looking into some, like, crystal ball, like some weird Baltimore crystal ball or something. Like, yeah, he,
1: he's seeing he, the future through Vincent's rims or spinners. <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, uh, but yeah that, that's basically what his argument was. I think at the end of the article I sent you, if I'm recalling it correctly, it was like, "It's like I I worked with Ed Burns and David Simon, and I was, I don't know if it said I starred in the show, but he's just like, I, I know this show, so it has to be me yeah. after, you know. I have to be the one to bring the sequel. I'm the only one that can tell this story. And David Simon's like, I'm trying to be polite, but... Uh, <laughs> But Nor- Norris, man, you gotta, you gotta, like, you gotta chill on this on this. Yeah, you know? like there it. is no Chris Partlow. Yeah. There is no real Chris Partlow. Yeah. He's like, I knew a guy named Partlow or Chris in the Lexington Terrace. He was he got like shot or something he wasn't a drug he wasn't an enforcer he he's a composite norris yeah. let it go like it's like david, no no
0: david simon's trying to be like you know i'll come see your play like when it gets produced when it's not called the wire and when it's not being claimed as a spin-off are <laughs> you using all these names <laughs>
1: Can I just say one more little thing related to this uh, territorial beef and all this stuff that's about to, you know, take flight here? Well, basically, I mean, I know they want the uh, the prime real estate. And in this, you know, setting, it's Poppleton and Fayette, which is, you know, really close to downtown. It's, you know, just just west of downtown in the area of uh, where, you know, the towers would have fall fallen. But this is all completely set on the east side. Um, I did a little digging, did a little geo cruise and um, I was like that that store, McCall's that they keep going into that's that, that's not you know this neighborhood looks completely different. It's you know very much neat like row houses and so forth, which looks great for the setting. but that's all up on uh, federal and bond up in kind of not uh, it's it's in East Baltimore not too far northeast of downtown it's not way far out but it's not way it's not like northeast baltimore but you know it's just uh in a neighborhood i think oliver so it's called on on the maps but um yeah so basically david simon they straight up went full hopper and switched up all the the street signs. (laughs) so I, i wonder if there are people trying to like get around sometimes they're like wait (laughs) <laughs> what? This is this is not Poppleton. What are you do, What are you talking about? No wonder O'Malley hated them. <laughs> like, they're like changing, they're all messing. <laughs> uh, but oh. it makes complete sense. I know. I, go ahead.
0: I mean, just like filming is hard, man. You got to get permit. No, yeah, I know location.
1: <laughs> no, I want I want the scene to take place on Fayette and Poppleton, and then for any East Side scene, they got to pack everything up. Trek across, you know, across town like like Bubbles and Johnny do the Jones Falls Expressway. I mean, they go east to west, you know, looking for the good good snack. And I just uh, but yeah, this is this was my point. I mean, it makes complete sense where they did it. it it's a great setup. If they would have filmed right where the projects used to be, you know, who knows? It could have been under construction, and the neighborhood lost. I think a lot of its density after they tore down the projects and there is now more like, you know, townhomes and stuff like that. So maybe it looked too modern back then. I don't know what it looked like back in 2004, but it wouldn't have that neighborhood, you know, it's what you imagine more like a classical row house neighborhood and mm-hmm. what the liquor store and whatnot, but just two, two, three blocks North is essentially where Amsterdam was located. So, wow. you know, it makes complete sense um, because the Amsterdam, the real life, you know, it's, it's between, north avenue on the north and then uh lafayette to the south and then yeah pretty much bond and uh on the on the west and broadway to the east so yeah all you had to do is just go up bond like three more blocks and you're basically in hamster Jam. so hey that's an easy uh you know it's an easier haul right then yeah relocation but this podcast is not gonna let that uh <laughs> let that go at least me at least this person <laughs>
0: you're the one person you're the yeah. one person watching this show and be yeah. like i demand total accuracy <laughs> when there's He's any prob. shot of street signs
1: yeah if i mean i know you said yeah. before like if if they ever would hear my geo like my you know uh like my dream job would be of course you know like hey, you want to you want to scout some locations and yeah. after hearing just one sound bite, they'd be like this guy's an idiot. Like, what does he think? We're going to go across the entire city to freaking film one one little scene? Yes. <laughs> like, imagine my scout map. It'd be like a, a, a cumulative mile. <laughs> like, like, why do we need to go 75 miles in one day just to film three scenes? <laughs> no. Someone I mean, with Google Maps will find out where exactly you're filming this and, and call you out. So you can't. Can't have that, right, Willie? Like, what's a budget? You know?
0: you're, <laughs> you're like the you're like a, a different version of like a old guy in a movie theater who's always like, I can see the cord. Like these effects aren't right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey there's a big difference to east and west Baltimore than it is pointing out like the was a Gatorade bottle on games of thrones game uh, of thrones yeah. set or the starbucks That's right. <laughs> <So he's> like, <laughs> I'm like McCall's grocery okay now it's called Chang's but uh like grocery where they're you know setting up out front but anyways I just want to thanks for letting me you know have that moment but Hey, you want to talk about cheese and and some dog fighting? It's like really one of the only times they kind of get into this theme, right? Dog fighting, which is mm-hmm. yeah, pretty yeah, bad stuff, but yeah, you know, unfortunate reality of certain environments.
0: Yeah, kind of reinforcing the whole like uh, symbiotic relationship that the that all the writers had. Richard Price did mention mm-hmm. that. He wanted, like, he had a limited time to kind of do any extensive research on, like, what the whole dogfighting underworld is like. But George Pelicanos, who is, you know, one of the main staff writers, uh, was writing a novel at that time, which had some content about that. So he lent Richard Price some advanced pages of his book. Um, But this is, like, the first time we really, well, I guess when uh cheese got shot by brother mozone he showed some vulnerability but like (laughs) this whole thing yeah he's like getting really remorseful um he he enters his dog into a fight and uh the opposing side cheats somehow um and method man our cheese has like uh the wrong idea in his head that the dog is worthless at this point so he euthanizes it with a bullet um and he gets all remorseful and kind of uh psychs out the the major crimes unit without meaning to he talks about uh what he had to do to his dog killing his dog (laughs) and automatically everybody in the police uh just assume that uh it has to be one of the four bodies that has shown up recently that uh They're tracking. They they totally spike the investigation at this point because Cheese knows that they're tapping their phones after the whole interrogation and realizes that, you know, they thought he actually killed somebody when he was really just broken up about, you know, having to put down his dog that didn't make him any money.
1: I yeah, I mean I know they're disappointed that they couldn't bring him up on a murder charge. Um so maybe in that moment that's how they're reacting, but they seem a little like uh, nonchalant about all the charges that they could potentially have on cheese, you know, like discharging yeah. the firearm. I mean I'm I,
0: animal cruel. Is
1: he a convicted felon, animal? Because it seems like dog fighting is a pretty serious charge. They could have a, maybe it's my lack of foresight, but you know, I mean, could they have... I, I know that really wouldn't serve the purpose of the story. Like, hey, what right. happened to Cheese? Oh, he's in jail for animal cruelty for three or four years. That's I mean, but not what see, they're going for.
0: We see a lot of, like, uh, you know, diplomacy and attempts at diplomacy displayed throughout this episode. Um, so, like, I think them being disappointed at the fact that they can like only ring them up on charges of animal cruelty means that they wouldn't be able to leverage it for their own purpose They're like oh we have this you know juicy morsel of you like euthanizing your dog can you give us the keys to your uncle's criminal enterprise like <laughs> just i don't i don't think yeah. they would have any have any leveraging with that charge
1: talking about charges and stuff like that that you want to talk about a uh, hurricane Carver and their uh, hurricane carver and their inability to really do any sort of meaningful police work at this point <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah they're just kind of like it just seems like uh they're spending more time making uh homophobic jokes than even like yeah. making uh, a moderate amount of effectful effective uh policing like even even if they were doing only like hand to hand buys or something it seems like they're just kind of like harassing people that they already know like they've been picking on poot for the last 2 years and they're just like picking him up to kind of like slap him around and like cuss him out and like turn him loose <laughs> like not really uh even on paper that's not effective
1: and yeah, they basically are uh kidnapping poot i mean there's no probable cause so you know, kind of showing the divide between the obvious divide that exists between them and the community uh, with everyone's reaction to poop, basically getting abducted from the corner, like you said, to be slapped around and, you know, uh, verbally abused. And then also to unwillingly become, you know, sort of an audience to what you said, their kind of homophobic game of would you rather that they're they're, they're having to play or that Carver's making Herc uh, you know participate in even even if he's doing so willingly Uh, any thoughts about this game which I mean okay maybe not age the best but kind of a bizarre story surrounding it uh, as far as Richard Price's writing uh, you know just for context I'm sure everyone's familiar you know Herc has to basically uh, choose a man to have sex with in order to uh, you know, get the women of his dream or woman of his dreams, right? Is that yeah. basically it? Yeah. And they're going back and forth. Uh it's like Steve McQueen, stuff like that. But he settles on uh <laughs> Gus Triandos, who we learn is uh old school Orioles Baltimore O's Baltimore Orioles player from the fifties who Um, had the unfortunate job of catching a knuckleballers knuckleball so he felt sorry for him uh, which is the joke that Richard Price uh, (laughs) you know implemented and then I know I sent you that pretty interesting talk that David Simon Richard Price had about one of Richard Price's more recent works The Whites which I still got to check out but there's some pretty funny anecdotes in there where uh, David Simon thought it was hilarious, but then realized like, Oh shoot, like, is Gus Triandos still alive? We got to call him <laughs> to make sure this is okay. And it ended up, you know, resulting in a pretty, what seemed like uh uncomfortable call where David Simon had to explain to Gus Triandos, you know, what this all meant with Gus saying like, so I'm gay, like you're making me gay. And then, and then, Uh, going like, no, 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 it's just, it's a, it's a, it's just some stupid joke in the show. And then Gus Triandos calling Simon back like a little while later, saying, Oh, I get it now. That's hilarious because he felt sorry because I had to catch that knuckleball. Apparently, it all worked out. I mean, the way he jokes about people, because then his backup, David Simon made him do a backup in case Gus Triandos was like, No, I don't want my name in this joke. And he made it like, Oh, there's some like, old school French wrestler who had giganticism or something who's he's like his head was half of his body and it was his grandma's favorite wrestler and he was like you know my grandma was five feet like 300 pounds and she was like he was a nice guy like you know he he would go wrestle for lepers you know and then Richard Price's his number one takeaway was like if he was on a leper colony who the hell was he wrestling you know (laughs) (laughs) and it's like god damn that's your takeaway out of all this not like maybe I shouldn't make fun of some guy who had like a deformity but I don't oh oh, oh, my hip flexors (laughs) oh
0: Moving on to uh, right. uh, Karketty kind of working the game now and uh, seeing how mm. he operates more in depth with kind of greasing Valchek's palms so he could get to Burrell's palms and exchange a free flow of like resources and a scratch my back. If I'll scratch my back if you scratch. uh, Wait. Yeah. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine scenario. Um and it kind of fits into what a lot of what David Simon writes about in homicide, that people operate in their, uh, social interactions with the philosophy of what have you done for me lately? So (laughs) Karketty is showing that, that he could, he could play the game a little bit. Uh, he gets Burrell, some police, some, some, uh, repairs of police cars and so forth. Uh, Valchek's planning the siege. Uh, that they could have like a broy relationship in the future because um, what what he does for him, like when he is on the path to become governor in later seasons. Um, <clears throat> but I thought it was interesting that Richard Price mentioned that he feels like he didn't even write these scenes because he just kind of like deferred all judgment to Bill Zorzi Jr. for all his experience uh, as a Baltimore Sun city politics writer. And he was like, yeah, like I don't kind of like intimating that he like had to like break it down and have it explained to him like a five-year-old of, like, how these scenes were going to operate and what Carcetti <laughs> was, like, actually doing and trying to, like, you know, woo the commissioner and whatnot.
1: Hey, it all it all came together, so no, no sweat for Richard Price. He can just stick to, like, you know, his little brilliant dialogues as far as roasting people and whatnot.
0: But there's also this really... uh <laughs> telling interaction that Carcetti has with Burrell uh, after Burrell like realizes that a lot of these squad cars have been repaired and like are fully functional and Carcetti's like, Oh yeah, that guy and my old man like go way back. They did some like a uh, religious thing together that I don't know the name of cause I'm not Catholic, but it's just like goes to show you like, it's continuing the themes of like, it's all who knows who and religion is going to play a, a big role in these like multi-generational relationships, just as it did in season two. Um, so yep. I feel like price Richard price was like really um, adept at, at breaking down things. Like even when it's not in the realm of his like expertise, he's just basically like, these are kind of like the basic rules of life and they can be applied to many different scenarios.
1: You know, in this case, like you said, they, they went they went way back, you know, was a positive uh, thing. Unlike what we saw with Frank, uh, Sabaka, and Valchek, how they were kind of basing their relationship on some way back beef. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> crazy stuff, man. Valchek's just, man, he's like... I don't have much entertainment. You know, the Greeks destroyed the sabaccas and all the longshoremen, but now this is, you know, just going to sit back and throw rocks. So whatever I can do, get a, get this drama, you know, to, to go full tilt. But anyways, I mean, I don't know if you mentioned the whole, you know, he learned some pretty interesting stuff. uh, Karketi does as far as, uh, Burrell mentioning that there are some funds withheld for, academy or delayed and stuff like that so yeah you know he leaves carcetti leaves armed with a little bit a little bit more uh, than he yeah. you know, came in with so greasy stuff man yeah uh that's politics well talking about politics there's you know it plays a part in everything especially the whole uh you know Comstat western district policing you know that whole situation so if you want to talk about that
0: Um, Well, I also, again, want to reference Richard Price's commentary uh, when he was talking about the Comstat meeting scenes and how he kind of likened it to a middle schooler who is like upset or who is like kind of afraid to be grilled by the teacher, the principal for not doing their homework and how that kind of like philosophy in your day-to-day life applies to many different things. So, he approached the cop scene the Comstat scene from that angle um and it shows uh how insecure uh you know the people who are it shows how insecure secure the people are who are on the receiving end of rawls's ire
1: yeah poor marvin he's uh he's uh so definitely he's on more than the hot seat, right? He gets threatened with his with his job almost or demotion yeah. if he doesn't figure it out because he can't definitely. he can't get, get the yeah done. Um definitely, yeah, middle school, that's a good reference. I remember like, what? You didn't do this like bizarre and insanely you know, <laughs> confusing homework assignment. Like go stand on the wall yeah. and call your mom or call your parents right now. It's like the whole class, just, you know, humiliation. I mean, or being singled out. You
0: can't give me a
1: tour of every different
0: organ and part of the human anatomy.
1: Damn, that happened? (laughs) My seventh grade science teacher was a monster. Anyway. well if you would have come from an environment where you needed to be scared straight at age nine you might have more knowledge of the human anatomy you know uh
0: yeah see i that's i'm a, that's the thing that's why i failed that class i i'm more of an experiential learner i needed to get like hands-on experience like that
1: yeah maybe that's some of the experience marvin needs because he got zero guns off the streets and that <laughs> uh like that term could you could we say that maybe marvin needed a uh a task force in his sector and I'm assuming yeah. the Eastern where all the body's driving, maybe a, a, a handy Wayne Jenkins or Daniel Herschel, get some guns off the streets, no matter what they do. Oh <laughs> uh,
0: man. I can't wait till p- when people are listening to this as the new Baltimore set mini series is like already on the air. So they like, I, so this isn't like too inside baseball. Yeah.
1: No, they they know everyone knows, man. Everyone hates Herschel. So look, at, I mean, yeah, I know. you know, I sent you that video clip of him getting hat- heckled at the, uh, at like the Freddie Gray protest because he's out there taunting people that he's probably beaten up in their neighborhoods in the eastern districts, eastern sections of Baltimore. Uh,
0: I know you also have some like <laughs> compelling information regarding what. <laughs>
1: It's not. I mean, thank you for the you know interlude. I appreciate it. you. Like you hold you hold some of my like takes in high esteem. Apparently, compelling. I like it. Uh, <laughs> no, I just you know I have my conspiracy theories. So basically, I just found it ironic that you know the so in the mid two thousands, Baltimore saw a pretty sharp decrease in. And homicides, the deputy commissioner, the guy who was in charge of operations and basically oversaw Comstat while he was the deputy commissioner from 2000, I think seven yeah. was a guy named Tony Barksdale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just I mean, I have no way of proving you know any relations, but, you know, David Simon always is like, yeah, we just chose Barksdale because there were so many of them. So I don't know. He's obviously on the opposite side of the law as mostly all the Barksdale's not saying all of them, you know were involved in just street stuff. We know about Dante Barksdale, or rest in peace, who was heavily involved in safe streets and working on that side. So, uh, side of things, but I think it's just a big coincidence. But yeah, basically, I just You know, being petty, I was like, oh, that's pretty ironic that there's the guy in charge of Comstat and who would basically be Rawls, it seemed like, in those situations. You know, his last name was Barksdale. So uh, imagine being a cop and you're just getting humiliated by, you
0: know, you're like, oh,
1: this guy's Barksdale. But if I chuckle, like if I'm a fan of The Wire and I'm a cop, (laughs) which I doubt there's many, well, there's some, but it's like, If I just laugh a little at this, I'll probably get fired. It's like, you're done. You got fired by Barksdale for not reducing crime. That's just, I don't know. That'd be uh, (laughs) ironic. Yeah. So let me just, I mean, I know I kind of go off on my tangent, but just, this is like directly from the Baltimore Sun, an article in 2017 about the like an inside uh, journey to Comstat. But it was just like uh, saying here, yeah, among them is former acting police commissioner, Tony Barksdale. So, okay. Maybe I wasn't. 100% on the deputy commissioner. Once behind the scenes, data guru who ran Comstat with an iron fist. Barksdale used to have Palmier's job. He used to dress down police commanders who stood at the lectern in Comstat meetings and didn't know their facts. Now he shouts from a Twitter pulpit (laughs) that the department isn't doing enough to stem violence and has forgotten the Comstat principles, particularly when it comes to deploying officers to locations of violent crime or putting cops on dots so also at the end i learned some stuff from going through some old case stuff or like a little short about uh i think it was a lawsuit around the time of gun trace task force even and it was a lot about that and they kind of quoted some of bark sales like i don't know how like what the context was if it was directly a quote in, in re- response to this case by, brought by a citizen, but it was like, you know, Daniel Herschel, who I mentioned, who was one of the members of the task force, had like this many complaints, and he's terrible. And it's like, you know, f- former uh, deputy commissioner Tony Barksdale thought that the more complaints a cop had, the harder they're working. Yay! I'm like, jeez, <laughs> yeah. This is your guy who was like now on Twitter bullying people. Yeah, sounds like uh, sounds like people in recent politics, you know. <laughs> twitter you know who are people are going after them for their twitter whatever but in reality they say way worse stuff and yeah. when it's brought into full context, and he also was like about the whole thing where they you know the tra- ta- gun trace would just drive their car at groups of people and like her you know whoever ran or whatever you know they would just harass or arrest and yeah. like the whole strong arm you know going to the corner to crack heads or intimidate people you know he thought that the city's going to get run over, you know, as far as crime's concerned. We're, we're always going to be on our back hills uh, if, you know, we can't essentially trick citizens by... You know, having that element of surprise where any given car driving down the street could be full of, you know, plainclothesmen ready to come out and get you. Jesus. So he's like, we got to keep that tactic. Uh, but then it's like in the article, oh, Tony Barksville, you know, it was a time of great drop in murder rates where they went away from zero tolerance and focus on the gun. Yeah. So it's like, what is it? I don't, this is yeah. so confusing. Was
0: there <laughs> some, there probably was some uh, juking of the stats in the, yeah. 10 tenure for sure.
1: Yeah, we gotta get into that, man. That's yeah, see? The Out whole, of a little silly conspiracy. This is whole, what this is the substance, really.
0: The whole Twitter angle too is killing me because now I'm just imagining like what discourse Rawls would engage in on Twitter like he'd probably be like <laughs> pretty toxic force but then like he probably would get dragged by a lot of his uh, peers because he like accidentally or unknowingly like something gay no, no, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: This whole concept thing, you know, we could see where this angle's headed. Colvin, he hears the whole auto thefts being downgraded, this and that. But, you know, there's obviously like way more important implications as far as this uh, episode's concerned. You know, Dojerman is someone who's kind of in the focal point. I just wanted to pick your brain before we get into the more, more heavy stuff. The, the whole meeting with the the, the corner boys, like at, running into that the movie theater, is pretty classic. Is this from anything Richard Price has done before? This is not from Clockers, right, or something? I feel like
0: he did. because I get. He said it was, it was it was a scene from Clockers that he kind of. Just... Yeah, it was right. Yeah,
1: I, I I literally found a pirated version on YouTube today and was trying to like skip through because I'm like I know I've seen this for because yeah this you know for those of you out there of course who's you know Clockers classic film classic book it's like you know the fury or whatever they're called the drug task force they're the knockos and they're like you know very much what we see from Herc and carver and you know caliccio and stuff but that's a pretty classic uh <laughs> scene where Herc Herc and carver look very shook like without their you know without yeah. their cop gear especially what's been going on with poot and them um, you know they beat bodie up many times and then Dojerman's just strolling out, like, too cool for school. He's got, like, the <laughs> baddest date, you know? It's, like, got a whole interracial thing going on. What do you mean, come on? No, like, this is serious stuff, Willie. So, you know, is this done? Is this, like, am I overthinking this? Where they're trying to bring the focus to Dojerman, like, as foreshadowing? Or is this something to, like, maybe shock the viewer to just kind of put him in their rear view? Like, oh, okay, that came out of nowhere. Or okay, am I not thinking progressively enough that oh yeah dozerman can have a black girlfriend like it's whatever i mean that's that's not the shocking part
0: maybe but also i'm all over the place but... But, but also uh i think a lot of people are probably still kind of like confused at this point early on in the season that even after the news breaks that dozerman has been shot they still <laughs> don't even know who he is yeah, <laughs> I see. I see where you're go. I see where you're going with that way of thinking, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know if that if that was a an intentional thing or not.
1: Yeah, but I mean, more importantly, yeah. If 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 the viewers unable to grasp who he actually is, you know, a has been shot, and it kind of brings apart, brings about a more important message, kind of right. uh, from Colvin about the whole the whole system. And he gives a really classic speech about it, you know. And, kind of. and
0: that's also lifted from the corner, the David Simon and yeah, Ed. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. I I I want to say something about like the scene that takes place where you see Dozerman get shot. Um, like you know, we mentioned before, Simon likes to keep it wide, and like the way we see this. Scene unfold isn't like how you would typically like experience it on like any other tv show because you would get like you know expository dialogue between like dozerman posing as an undercover and the like drug dealers and then like be this thing but the way that like we experience it it's almost like as if you're seeing it as if like Somebody was filming it on their cell phone, or like it was like on a local news channel or something, where you just seeing a report of it. Like it happened super quickly. Um, and it's kind of leaving us in the dark, but uh, the way they fill us in is really great, and it does lead Colvin further down his, uh, you know, crisis of conscience, uh, and like whether or not he's doing anything good and comes to a realization. Um, That's aided along by his meeting with the deacon where uh, he makes a brilliant analogy saying, uh, you know, you're working in drugs and that's like sweeping leaves, uh, sweeping leaves on a windy day kind Mm -hmm. of causes Colvin to like, you know, second guess himself and think, you know, maybe we could stop like worrying so much about these low level drug charges and focus on the, the meat of the issue here. Which is what that whole paper bag speech is about.
1: Exactly, I and mean, yeah, going back to that that statement by the by the deacon, uh, it's definitely something I've used many times, just in you know day to day life. Maybe not always like in in context, you know. It's like it's like, babe, can you make go make the bed? I'm like, well, you know, it's kind of just like sweeping leaves on a windy day. Like, go get. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, for me, and I. When I say for me, I'm speaking for both of us, it's a win-win when I when I say that because it's like, you know, especially, you know, of course the context matters. But, you know, if I say it around colleagues or, you know, just in day-to-day, you know, whatever interaction back when that used to be a thing uh, with, you know, other people. But uh, it's like, you know, either you sound really smart or you find out, you know, who's watched The Wire in that interaction or, you know, it's both. I mean, not that I try to steal it like as my own, but I feel like I've said it before, and people are like, "Oh yeah, that's good." I'm like, "Well, it's from like the best show ever, don't you know?" (laughs) Uh, They're like, "What? Oh, okay." Uh, But like, I'm just saying, it's a win-win. But yeah, you know, yeah, great, great, uh, great scene there, and of course, all the levels of irony or just the levels of layers, Mm -hmm. with of course the deacon being played by Little Melvin, who probably single-handedly contributed to this like drug uh, drug crisis biggest you know? inspiration
0: I mean, for Avon's character Yeah,
1: exactly so yeah he uh, i mean obviously was in jail for a long time but i guess he got pretty religious you know at a certain point and had a, a relationship with someone who was um a reverend Frank Reed the 3rd at Bethel AME who's like that's one of the biggest congregations in Baltimore so but I was going to ask you, what do you think about that whole relationship? Because, you know, obviously, Colvin and the Deacon, it's like they're, the way they're playing off each other is pretty brilliant. And as you mentioned, Colvin's speech at the end as well. But I know that I think I read also in all the pieces matter or I just did that, you know, real Jay Landsman really wasn't a fan of, uh, you know, Nathan Barksdale, who I think I mentioned previously. Like I missed it, but he was cast as a drug counselor, the intake guy in season one with Johnny. But and he, you know, d- uh, he thought he was like quote unquote, I think a scumbag or, yeah. you know, he just wasn't. He was yeah. a bad guy, and then and he, what, like he wasn't. He didn't like little world. Melvin. Yeah,
0: yeah, he did. Yeah, he
1: terrified the he, he didn't, didn't like, like little Melvin. He didn't uh, like little Melvin, uh, and but he also-
0: Uh, He also didn't approve of Cuddy being his character being Dennis Cuddy Wise because Dennis Cuddy Wise was like a vicious killer in real life, too.
1: He didn't like Little Melvin either, but Robert Wisdom, I think, spent a lot of time with real Jay Landsman. I mean, of course, they're characters, you know, working in the same precinct, but I think he spent a lot of time with Jay Landsman to, you know, kind of get in the flow of the whole cop thing or whatever. So I'm like... You know how did that interaction you know I wonder how that all went down like before the scene if he was like hey Jay, like uh you know I'm gonna go talk to this guy who you you hated pretty much because what you you know what he did but uh interesting
0: yeah it's, it's kind of crazy how these uh <clears throat> um crossfire ideological uh <laughs> things can like exist on a uh something that's like so contingent upon a team effort as like a set for a tv show where david simon is like almost kind of trying to like light a match sometimes i think he's like thrives off the chaos of like people like not entirely getting along like you mentioned the richard burton the actor who plays shamrock like was working for o'malley and Jay Landsman yeah. not liking the fact that a former drug trafficker is on the show and like Ed Burns and George Pelicanos are like,
1: oh, I don't want to have anything to do with politics. This is going to be so boring. Like, it's a. And Simon's in the middle of it. Yeah. But I mean, that whole thing about the Landsman thing, yeah, it makes me think too, because maybe Landsman wasn't real Landsman wasn't in on the whole layers of it. I mean, I'm sure he knows, but yeah, like you said, he hated the whole dennis wise uh aspect because he was like two to the head and you're dead dennis wise and now he's like working with kids on the show they knew i'm like landsman didn't you know that it's all big it's all one big web too and there's layers to that because we know yeah. that dennis wise isn't actually dennis wise. like you know he's dennis Cuddy wise but he's actually Calvin Ford, who was actually CCO, because that's the guy who he really embodies—the guy who got out of jail and then helped the kids, like with yeah. boxing. So it all evens out, like the universe, the wire universe corrects itself. So I'm wondering, did David Simon not tell Landsman that on purpose to like keep him like, ah, like all angry, so he could be he could be in the little press briefings before their shifts, like you you got to do like Man, like, I
0: gotta, I I gotta say, <laughs> I gotta say from that yeah. uh come town clip that come town yeah. clip you sh- shared with me, yeah. uh they d- I mean they had like a lot yeah. of just yeah. kind of like positions I didn't agree with about the show, um but the one thing that they did mention <laughs> that I see eye to eye with them on was that like any actor who is on the show who is like a native Baltimorean they like stick out like a sore thumb because their accents are like so yeah. pronounced like it's hilarious yeah
1: if you could have stayed sober like whatever <laughs> but I mean they also like really shit on lands himself like he's just a bad actor That's but they true. get at least they yeah I know I mean they're like you said, we don't agree with like mostly everything, but I mean, one of uh, I don't know much about him, but one of them is from like Baltimore, right? I mean, he knows where the best, uh, uh, whatever Royal Farms is, uh, <laughs> you know, getting that jail food. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: anyway, but, but then also... Uh, and also to be fair to what we were talking about earlier, Weebay like does give some context for like how vicious of a person Cuddy used to be. Like he tells yeah, us yeah. like what made him end up in Jessup and it's kind of similar to uh two to the head you're
1: dead. Like I mean, look at Cuddy now. I mean, we didn't really talk too much about him. Well, I mean, he's gonna be obviously a bigger figure, bigger, bigger character, but you know, he's doing the work. He's out sweating and you know, while everyone else is You know, taking the what people would say the easy route as far as the drug game. He's like day working as a you know temporary laborer on some rich lady's farm. Who's like, I wonder if her ball. If I spoke Spanish, would she have like a Baltimore accent? Like you soy, like you, (laughs) como estas. So,
0: um, it says that like what she's roughly saying in that scene is. I want much less pills of redwood on this and much more wide a little yes, thank you.
1: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's pretty uh that's pretty good. Oh um, yeah. man. Okay, so no wonder Cuddy was confused. Cause even if someone said that in English to me, I'd be like, What what? Yeah. All right, Willie. Uh, where where we at? We wrapping this thing up. My legs are needing yeah, to let's, stretch. Let's, let's get out of
0: here. Thank you so much uh to everybody for listening to the end of this show. uh If you want more of our content, we're on all social media: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Gods Will Not Save You.
1: Yes, and reach us uh, via email if you, if you don't necessarily want to subscribe to. Uh, you know Willie's really enticing uh <laughs> pitch as far as connecting with us on social media choose like I said choose an email the gods will not save you at gmail.com
0: also thank you to Andre Tesnis for doing all the work for uh, the the art for our cover logo
1: yeah man uh, thanks so much thanks Star, for the music really came through with those uh, original original tracks for our intro outro some bumper music check him out mostart.com he's got a great catalog uh yeah good stuff all right well good to see you Willie we'll we'll talk again soon